Well, hello, everyone. Let me add my welcome to, Mel to Melissa's. I'm Janice. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And tonight, I had planned to do a deep dive into resentments, um, a talk I've done before, which I think is really important because, as our big book says, resentment is the number one thing that cuts us off from the sunlight of the spirit, that cuts us off from God. It's like being cut off from our spiritual oxygen supply. And before I start, I just want to put it in context because in case someone's brand new and they say, oh, this is great. I'm going to run off and do a resentment inventory. I'm going to say, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way because resentment is part of step four. So three steps come before it. The first is admitting we're powerless over food, over alcohol, over whatever, and that our lives are a train wreck. The second step says we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, God as we understand God, can restore us to sanity. Why is this important? Well, for a couple reasons. One, the third step is where I surrender my life to God. How am I going to surrender my life to some being who I don't trust loves me and has my back? I can't. So that's one reason. And the other reason, it says, came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That that belief, that faith is so important. It's a whole step, like what I believe, right? A lot of the steps are action steps. We write an inventory, we make amends. But step two is just about coming to believe. And I believe that um, faith actually does something in the spiritual world. It's like a spiritual catalyst, right? If I want something on earth, I go to the grocery store, I hand the, the clerk a $20 bill and I get a bag of groceries. Well, I can't hand God a $20 bill. How do I get God's attention? How do I get God to act on my behalf? And it's faith generally activated through prayer. So my belief that God will restore me to sanity, I think when God hears that, like, okay, Janet believes I can restore to sanity. Okay, team, let's get to work on our renovation job on her heart. I think it actually does something. And then step three, we surrender our will and our lives to this God, this power who we, by this time, believe cares about us and can restore us to sanity. And if anyone um, is stuck on believing that God really cares about you personally and will restore you personally to sanity, I have found that there's only five reasons people have why they think God won't help them. And I'll help you on any of them. So y'all can feel free to just ask me questions afterwards about that. So we believe we're powerless. We believe God can help us. And we've surrendered our life to this living, loving God. Now we do an inventory. Now we work on resolving resentments. And I know a few weeks ago, Melissa gave a talk on how to do step four. Um, and I just want to do a deeper dive into resentments because it can be really tricky. So remember, page 66 of our big book tells us resentments are fatal, right? They lead to our demise because they cut us off from the sunlight of the spirit. Like imagine a plant being cut off from the sunlight. It would die. And so do we internally. And then the big book tells us how to get rid of resentments. And although, like I said, we covered this when we reviewed the chapter, how it works, I just thought I'd just share some like, I don't know, random remarks and things I've read about resolving resentment and entering into the state of forgiveness. 
So how do we as addicts do it? Well, I found 10 points that I've mashed together. Um, I've used a big book and another book by E. Stanley Jones, whose work was studied by the founders of AA and clearly incorporated into the big book. That book is called The Way to Power and Poise. So here we go. Number one, look at why we are angry. So we all do those check marks as to what's affected. And that's generally the easiest column to fill out. But I think it deserves some deeper thought because E. Stanley Jones says the basis of most resentment is an unsurrendered, touchy self. The fact that I have a resentment shows that there's still a self, right? A part of me that's oversensitive because my will has not been fully surrendered to the will of God. And he says, I think this is so pretty. When surrendered to the will of God, we throw off resentments as healthy skin throws off disease germs. Unless there is a cut in the skin, the disease germs don't get in. So I started thinking about this, like with respect to the third column in our resentment inventory, self-esteem, right? If something affects my self-esteem, I haven't surrendered to God my demand that others think about me and treat me a certain way. If I had, it wouldn't bother me so much what anyone else said or thought about me. And a lot of times in our resentment inventories, when we're looking for our part, like so-and-so is saying bad things about me. My part is what other people say or think about me is really none of my business not my business. Life is so much easier when we keep focus on only the things which are our business, which is generally just how I conduct myself. That's it. Most other things aren't my business. Life becomes a lot easier. Another thing that we can be affected is our ambitions. But if I fully surrendered my career to God, for example, wouldn't matter so much if someone else got that promotion and not me. I would know, like it says on page 63 of the big book, we had a new employer, it's with a capital E, who provides what I need if I stay close to him and perform his work well. I had an experience once, um, I used to work as an attorney and I was at a law firm and they wanted me to join an organization that had values I didn't believe in, so I couldn't join. And I actually got fired for that. Um, so I got another job working in court management, which I ended up liking even more, um, but it was $15,000 a year less. Okay. But this book says, you know, I get all I need if I stay close to God and perform his work well. And he must've known I needed money to pay my rent and stuff because at that exact time, my parents decided that as part of their estate planning, they were going to give me $18,000 a year. Um, I stayed close to God. I did what I thought his will was, and he took care of me. Now, it isn't always as dramatic as that, but sometimes it is. Um, and we always have to remember step four comes after step three. I have the courage to do this painful moral inventory because I believe in a God who is all loving, all powerful, who cares about me, and who has my back. And it's the same with my personal, my sex relations, my security. Basically, if something or someone threatens them, I look to see where I haven't fully surrendered my right to something. I try to remind myself I have no rights to anything. Um, 
my food plan was very, very low carb because both my parents were diabetic. And no matter how healthy I ate, I'm, I now have to take medication for high blood sugar. Um, I have no right to perfect blood sugar, even if I eat healthy. I just don't have that right. And life is just easier when we realize we really don't have a right to very much, that everything is gift. When we see everything is gift, life is so much easier. Now, remember, I qualify this by saying an unsurrendered self is the basis of most resentment. Obviously, if someone has violence committed against them, I would never tell that person, oh, your problem is a lack of surrender. So let's just be clear. There's, all, there's exceptions to the rule. Um, number two, the big book says to realize the other person is perhaps spiritually sick. Now, this can be overused. I think this is way overused. I could probably label Mother Teresa as spiritually sick if she said something I didn't like. But what about the times when someone isn't as spiritually developed as I would like? I find it's always helpful to look at their story, their upbringing. So for instance, um, my dad yelled a lot when I was a kid and he worked a crazy amount of hours. But if I dig really deep and walk a mile in his shoes, I saw that my dad was actually physically abused by his father. He didn't physically abuse us. His father didn't have a job. And my father worked a lot to support for us. So working two jobs and only yelling was major progress for my dad. And in God's eyes, he might actually be a saint. So looking at maybe the reason other people act a certain way, it gives us empathy. And I can honestly say now, I have my father has passed away. I have zero resentment against him. And the only time I ever think about anything he did is when I use it in a situation to help someone else. And my dad more than made up for it by the way he treated his grandkids, my kids. Um, it's helpful to remember there's a little bit of good in the worst of us and a little bit of bad in the best of us. Um, here's a prayer that I've used that I find helpful. Lord, this person is an infinitely precious child of yours and a spiritually developing person with flaws, just like me. Please help me to relate to them with both truths in mind so that I can always love, always forgive, and if necessary, set appropriate boundaries. And since we're talking about realizing the other person is perhaps spiritually sick or spiritually developing, I think it's good to briefly touch on the point that forgiveness does not mean I have to be in a relationship with someone who is so spiritually sick that they're abusive. If someone is abusive to me, yes, I need to forgive on the basis that someone is spiritually sick just like I would forgive a crippled person for not being able to walk. If someone has a spiritually crippled soul, I forgive them, but I don't need to be in relationship with them. Number three, we never stop with just saying the other person is spiritually sick or spiritually developing. We resolutely look for our part in the resentment. And our part is never just, this is a spiritually sick person and I need to pray for him. Um, in fact, my sponsor told me to replace the term spiritually sick with 
human, just like me, or I've heard spiritually developing. Otherwise, it's too easy for me to get on a spiritual hilltop and say, well, I'll pray for that poor spiritually sick person down in the valley. Um, but I have to see my part. If someone was nasty to me, was I nasty to them first? If one of my children is undisciplined, is it my part that I was selfish and lazy in teaching them the right things? If I'm angry at how other people are acting, is my part that I have a right to control how others think, what they do or what they say? Um, so I'll give you some examples. If someone says, I'm mad at my you know, uncle because he invited this cousin um, who I don't like to his 50th birthday party. Well, my part would be, I think I have a right to dictate how other people run their lives. I have no right to decide who people should invite, not invite, go out with, marry, how their marriage should go. Um, my father, he was, at, now it's very cute. I think he, he would be in a room and there would be, let's say, a muffin on the table in front of him. And my mother would be all the way on the other side of the house. And he would call Gloria. And she would say, yes, Sam. And she would come running and he would say, can you give me my muffin, please? And she would give him his muffin. And then he would say, I love you, Gloria. And she would say, I love you, Sam. And then they would like make out. Um, and it got me mad because I thought like, he shouldn't treat her that way. And my sponsor said, it's none of your business. And I would say, unless someone is being like physically abused and can't take care of themselves, other people's relationships are none of my business. Here's a couple other things that I think get us tripped up. Feeling like I'm entitled to something. I didn't get the raise that I wanted. What's my part? I think I'm entitled to X amount of money. I think I'm entitled, or if someone doesn't like me, I think I'm entitled to have people feel about me the way I want them to. I'm entitled to nothing. Um, another way I can be wrong is by being a peace faker. So give an example. Um, let's say, I think my husband keeps the air conditioning too cold. Um, that may have been the case before I became a woman of a certain age where I'm always warm. But let's say I thought my husband keeps the air conditioning too cold and I resent him for that. What's my part? I never said anything. I'm a peace faker. And we do that a lot. If there's a hard conversation we don't want to have with someone we supervise at work, with a spouse, with a child. We become peace fakers. We don't say anything, but we stew inside. What's my part? It's what's the defect? I'm really being manipulative. I'm manipulating a face peak, fake peace, so I will feel better. And the last thing I wanna talk about is here is righteous indignation. So let's say I look at, I don't know, um, human trafficking, because that's one that really blows my mind, how someone could do that to other people. But if I sit there and I am mad at the traffickers and all that, what am I doing about it? That's really my role. The big book says we don't take the weight of the world on our shoulders. I had a sponsor once, she was um, appalled at how people abused animals. So she just started a little animal shelter. Um, 
And I read, and I can't remember where I read this. It must have been some piece of 12-step literature, but that that said, I leave righteous indignation to people who are better able to handle it than I am. There may be nothing wrong with righteous indignation for my husband. Let him get mad at, you know, the human traffickers, things like that. I can't afford to. I'm wired such that I cannot afford to have righteous indignation. Not saying that other people couldn't or shouldn't, I can't. Um, I have found that most of my resentments go away when I realize what my part is. Um, and at the beginning, I needed a lot of help with it. So for instance, I had an elderly relative who wanted to spend a lot of time with me and I didn't want to with them. I did, I was cheerful, I was kind. Um, and I said to my sponsor, well, I don't think I have a part. And she said, if you have a resentment, you do. And she said, how about this? I think I should only have to do things that I want to do. And I'm like, dagger to the heart. That was me. Selfish. I had a resentment because I believed I was entitled to only do things I wanted to do. And then, of course, the resentment start melting away. Um, Number four, we have to make up our minds that in this world, we are not going to escape injustice and pain. The big book talks about having certain low spots and trials and tells us what to do when, not if, but when trouble comes. And the big book, remember, it doesn't say we will never have trouble. So if we believe that because we've committed our lives to God, we will have a trouble-free, pain-free life, we will be guilty of that old enemy expectation. And remember the big book tells us that when trouble comes, we cheerfully capitalize on, on them as a chance for God to show his omnipotence. That means we continue to do the right thing, trust God and wait for the miracles. So it's like, if I'm trying to run the show, only one person at a time can be controlling things. If I'm doing it, God's not going to force his way in. But if I say, okay, God, I'm just going to step aside and let you be in charge. Thy will be done. Then he can act. And because he's a God who loves me, he acts on my behalf. Number five, we can pray for those who harm us. E. Stanley Jones says that by praying for those who wrong us, the resentment is sterilized by the antiseptic of prayer. The resentment is sterilized by the antiseptic of prayer. And he advises us to pray first, as soon as we feel the first tinge of a resentment. And that makes sense. Remember, if I try to do an inventory without involving God, it's just psychology. And we can always do the freedom from bondage prayer found on page 552. It says that if we have a resentment we can't get over, we do this, this prayer for two weeks. Even if we don't mean it, we pray for the other person. We pray for them to have whatever we want for ourselves. I will tell you, I've tried this numerous times and I don't think I've ever made it the full two weeks before the resentment was just gone, just like disappeared, evaporated. Number six, we can go beyond prayer. The big book says we ask God to show us how we can be helpful to the person who has hurt us. We can do good to those who hurt us. Can we bring in the garbage of the, the garbage cans of the neighbors we hate? Um, 
I remember when my son was in high school, his senior year, sometimes I would get really irked at him. And then when I would go out to get a coffee, I would just ask him, can I bring you back a coffee? Um, the best example I can think of, it was from a movie, um, true story, the end of a spear, the end of the spear, where there were some missionaries in South America. And as soon as they got to the mission field, they were killed instantly by the people they went there to try to help. And their wives went back to the same place. And it just happened that the, um, the people, these group of people in South America then all had polio and the wives nursed them back to health. Um, that's the kind of love I, I would like to have. Um, remember in the chapter, the family afterwards in the big book, page 127, it says that we can help another person's crankiness disappear if we show love and spiritual understanding. So someone is cranky, I show love and spiritual understanding. Now they have a caveat there, right? They say some people um, are such that no matter how much love and tolerance we show them, it won't help. Again, we forgive, but we don't have to be in relationship with people who abuse us. Number seven, we can forgive because God has forgiven us. We can think about what God has done for us. This is from Grace Stedman, Letters to a Troubled Church. Think of the thousand times a day God manifests his love and faithfulness to you. As you think of his love for you, a feeling of humble gratitude will spring up within you. As you experience gratitude to God for all he has done in your life, you will realize that the people around you need to be treated with love and patience, just as God has treated you. Since God has been so patient with you, how can you be critical and impatient toward others? God has patiently led you to a deeper understanding of his truth. He has waited for your lagging understanding and faltering faith to catch up. So how will we respond to others whose understanding and faith haven't caught up to ours? Now, here's what we're not to do. The big book cautions me against harboring resentments. I think that's such an interesting word here, harbor. It reminds me like a place where a ship can be safe in a storm. I should not make myself a safe harbor for resentments so that anger and hate feel comfortable living in me. So how do we do that? Well, so we are not to review our resentment over and over in our minds, or even worse, review it over and over with 13 other people under the guise of getting help or asking people to pray for that other poor sick person. When what we're really trying to do is get people to agree with our perception that that other person is a creep. We're building a harbor if we do that. The best thing we do is to tell one person and ideally, someone who doesn't know the person we resent. I often talk to Melissa about resentments, but sometimes if it's someone she knows, I'll generally just go to my sponsor who doesn't go to the meetings I go to or travel in the circles I do. Sometimes we call someone before we do a resentment inventory saying we just need to vent. But Tim Keller, one of my favorite spiritual writers says, if we're angry with someone, we don't need to vent. We need to repent. So before we call each other to talk about our lousy husbands, our lousy bosses, or our lousy kids, um, we need to do our resentment inventory. And of course, I'm not talking about my kids. 
Um, we avoid retaliation and argument. So this is number nine. The big book makes it clear that avoiding retaliation is an essential ingredient in the cocktail of forgiveness. If someone wrongs us, there's this sense that the other person owes us, like they've incurred a debt. And we wanna make that other person pay. So we do that by hurting them back, by yelling at them, by making them feel bad, or just waiting and watching that, hoping that something bad will happen to them. Only after we see them suffer in some way, do we feel like the debt's been paid. So what's forgiveness? Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment of someone who harmed us. Forgiveness means we give up the right to revenge either here or in the hereafter. Um, I had someone in my past who wasn't, you know, who yelled at me a lot. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be nice. But when this person dies, God's going to get them. And I realized I couldn't do that. So one day I said to God, whatever this person did against me, when they die, don't hold it against them. I gave up my right for God to get that person back to my on my behalf. And eventually my emotions caught up and the resentment was 100% gone. Number 10, we ask God to help us show the person the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Um, I've heard that instead of the word pity, we don't use that word much these days, we use compassion. That means we don't just express ourselves or vent in order to feel better. E. Stanley Jones tells of a woman who was very angry at her husband who said, I think I'd be well if I could just once tell my husband to go to hell. His comment was, perhaps she would have been relieved momentarily, but the resentment would fill up again and be ready for another spillover. Expression is not the remedy. It's merely dealing with a symptom instead of the disease. So what does it mean to have tolerance, compassion, and patience? Tolerance, my own threshold to withstand pain or sorrow is raised. I stop being so easily offended. Pity or compassion, the feeling of sorrow and compassion at the suffering and misfortune of others. It's to put myself in another's shoes and to try to just think of what their lives are like. Um, and then I want to say a few things about forgiving ourselves. People ask sometimes, should I put myself on a resentment inventory? The big book is silent about it, but um, I don't think we should. First, it's very awkward. Like I resent myself because I, I don't know, because I slept too late. Okay. Where was I? It's just, it's very awkward. Um, so, but if I resent myself, it's because I've done something wrong. So what I really need to do is admit it, ask God to remove the defect of character, discuss it with someone, make my amends, and then I'm forgiven. Um, and then sometimes people say they have more trouble forgiving themselves than they do forgiving others. They have trouble accepting God's forgiveness. But what really lies behind this idea of I can't forgive myself? So according to Tim Keller, when we say I can't forgive myself, it's really an indication of pride because we're in essence saying that our judgment is more accurate than God's judgment. When we say, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself, we're acting as if our own judgment holds more weight than God's. 
And the big book is clear that it's so easy. Anytime we're sorry for what we've done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we will be forgiven. We don't have to grovel. We don't have to live in remorse, morbid reflection, feel that we need to feel bad for a certain amount of days for it to really count. If we go to God and we say what we've done wrong, talk to another person, make amends, we are forgiven. So I want to close with my favorite story of forgiveness. Um, I think a lot of y'all have heard this before, but it's a beautiful story. And every time I hear it, it gets me. Um, so this is by Corey Ten Boom. This is what she says. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the rear at the door, to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter bombed out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their coats, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with the rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead light, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me Ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day had to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death just by asking? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, 
but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father in heaven forgive yours. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And she's like, and she's a, she's miffed. She's really miffed. And I was very gentle. And I said, you know what? I'm, I want to keep the door open. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And I knew that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. God help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Um, to me, just the most beautiful story of forgiveness. So I, whenever I give this talk, I just hope that these like random thoughts on resolving resentments against others, against ourselves are helpful. And maybe will help all of us, me included, become more like the Corey Ten Booms in the world. And with that, I will pass.